cruising altitude, it's time for the flyover. Welcome back to Flyover View, a member of the Heartland Pod family of podcasts and a look at Heartland news from 30,000 feet. From the Gateway Arch to the Rocky Mountains, I'm Kevin Smith, here with my co-host, Sean Diller. We have two parts to today's show, the Heartland Headline segment, where we'll cover the biggest stories of the week, followed by the Lightning Round, where we'll cover the rest of our favorites in rapid succession. Hey, Sean, you ready to start the show? Is Chief Justice John Roberts ready to keep on affirming the Affordable Care Act? Hey, you know what? If you can't win the three-peat, maybe we'll go for the four. (laughs) (laughs) Our first story tonight, Missouri can't void federal gun laws. Speaking of something that might be teed up in the courts someday, last week, Missouri Governor Mike Parson signed into law a Republican-backed bill that bans police from enforcing federal gun rules. This new attempt to run to the right while caring little for the consequences has obviously captured the attention of the federal government. Now, in a letter sent Wednesday night, justice officials have told the state that the U.S. Constitution's supremacy clause outweighs the measure, setting up yet another potential legal battle. Under the bill, Missouri's law would subject law enforcement agencies with officers who knowingly enforce any federal laws to a fine of about $50,000 per violating officer. Republican lawmakers who worked to pass the bill have said that they were motivated by the potential of more restrictive gun laws in the Biden administration. But state Democrats have argued that the law is unconstitutional and have predicted it would not pass a challenge in the court. The Justice Department argued in a letter that the state lacks the authority to shield any Missouri businesses or citizens from federal law or to prevent federal law enforcement officials from carrying out their duties. Acting Assistant Attorney General Brian Boynton said that the law threatens to disrupt the working relationship between federal and local authorities, while also noting that Missouri receives federal grants and technical assistance to combat gun laws. Boynton also said that the bill, quote, conflicts with federal firearm laws and regulation, and federal law would supersede the state's new statute. He says federal agents in the U.S. attorney's offices in the state would continue to enforce all federal firearm laws and regulations. He asked that Parson and Eric Schmidt the state's attorney general, clarified the law and how it would work in a response by Friday. And as mentioned by Rachel on Monday's pod, Parson has already kind of admitted to realizing the potential ramifications, but apparently feels the need to virtue signal anyway. So, Sean, why why does this matter to the day-to-day folks? What One, are we looking at here? <laughs> the usual is that uh, the people who are supposed to be representing voters and carrying out the people's business are just wasting everybody's time. But really, you know, I think that this creates confusion and this would, you know, have the effect of putting people in danger. Local law enforcement should be able to disarm somebody who's dangerous. And this is so dumb. It's unspeakably dumb. Well, yeah. I mean, we look like a pack of fools. I mean, and someone mentioned today, and as I got on to a comment thread and got into a typical Facebook fight, um, that other states have done something along those lines, too. And it's like, well, who cares? The supremacy clause will outweigh it. And in the meantime, you have these police precincts, uh, you know, basically being attacked by the supposed back the blue party. You know, it's it's just kind of crazy to me. Right. Yeah. If you are a local police officer you know, I can't imagine how that would feel and the confusion that this would this would bring up. And that's another thing is that these politicians are responding to 
crazed voters who are demanding this sort of action. And, you know, it's getting more dangerous out there. So, you know, this idea that the state legislature and governor can bar local cops from disarming someone dangerous or enforcing federal gun law, again, is just uh, so idiotic. It's just indicative of the problem with a supermajority in any situation with in politics, they they have to run to the right because they're not afraid of losing their seat to Democrats. So they're afraid of losing their seat to even crazier Republicans. Right. So what do they do? They go crazy and they go, go crazy, as far folks. right as they possibly can. <laughs> and, you know, gun nuttery is is a just a sweet spot for them. Yeah. Opioids ripping through United States workforce with deaths at a record level. Before the COVID-19 pandemic was the drug epidemic. Its relentless toll added a record 90,722 overdose deaths in the U.S. for the year through November 2020, a grim number obscured by coronavirus casualties that recently topped 600,000. As the virus transfixed the nation, the drug crisis spread to largely untouched parts of the country, exacerbated by the recession and millions of job losses. Not only stores, and restaurants shuttered, counseling services moved online, inpatient clinics closed, and mobile clinics pulled back. Without support, many Americans relapsed and some turned to drugs for the first time. Straddling the border between Tennessee and Virginia is Bristol, a city of roughly 50,000 people. Once benefiting from agriculture, mining, and steel, the birthplace of country music now depends on mountain tourism. Businesses here have grappled with the opioid epidemic for years, and the issue is once again rearing its head. At some white-collar companies, only four out of 10 applicants can pass a drug test, with many showing recent opioid use. Other firms have eliminated the test altogether to get people in the door, said Beth Reinhardt, head of the region's Chamber of Commerce. We hear all the time from folks that you have people who are capable and apply, and when they get to the drug screen portion, they don't pass. It certainly does kick a lot of people out of a lot of jobs, and our businesses need warm bodies right now says Reinhardt. America's drug use is closely linked to the economy. The opioid crisis cost the U.S. more than $2.5 trillion from 2015 to 2018, according to the White House Council of Economic Advisors. It's one reason behind men's sliding participation in the labor market. President Biden proposed more than $10 billion to combat the opioid epidemic in his fiscal 2022 budget, including funds for medical treatment and recovery programs. Another reason behind the increase in opioid deaths is the prevalence of fentanyl, a synthetic opioid that can be 100 times more potent than morphine. More than 80% of opioid deaths in the 12 months through November 2020 stemmed from such drugs, and many have no idea they're taking them. Jack Weiss, deputy chief of the Charleston Police Department in South Carolina, said, quote, we've had multiple people overdose at college parties that thought they had cocaine. We've had multiple people found deceased in hotel rooms that thought they had cocaine. We've had other people who thought they were taking Xanax and things, and it turned out they were just taking fentanyl. Down south in Louisiana, for every two people who died of COVID-19 in Orleans Parish last year, one died of an overdose. Now that the city has a better handle on the coronavirus, officials are redoubling efforts on opioids, stepping up education and outreach, and buying hundreds of additional doses of Narcan. Jennifer Avegno, director of the New Orleans Health Department, said, quote, it's here and we've got to mitigate it before it becomes our next pandemic. Just like with COVID, health and economics are inextricably tied. Yeah, and I think that the federal government, uh, with the rescue plan that Biden put out, like that's that's kind of the first step, like just getting money out there 
But decriminalizing marijuana would be a good step towards tackling some of this opioid overdose use and, you know, taking away the stigma of drugs in general, having places where people can go to get help. And, you know, like they say, the economy is tied to it, too. It's like if people can't get jobs, I mean, sometimes they just look out for that little bit of happiness, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the addiction crisis in this country is part of the larger mental health crisis. And, you know, that's linked to a lot of family level, you know, economic crises and stress. And, you know, you're exactly right. There are lots of, you know, smaller tactics that I think can be put into place. Uh, You know, Narcan is one and removing more barriers to uh, access for buprenorphine, uh, Suboxone. I, I don't even know enough about what can be done because I think right now we're still at a point in our country where we're where we're deciding whether we're okay having people who get addicted to drugs just die. And uh, I think we need to get yeah. past that. I think we're getting there. Well, and there's some stigma to it too, that um, a really great book that I read a few years ago was Hand to Mouth. And I, I forget the author's name. I'm blanking on it at the moment, but it it talked about just being poor in America and the working poor situation and stuff. It really kind of helped open my eyes to, it's like, well, why would someone who is working these uh, difficult jobs uh, turn to drugs so much? And it's like just the concept of like these little pieces of happiness that you can get. And, you know, it's like when your life's rough, sometimes, and you don't really have someone to lean on. Sometimes you lean on something like that and it's just, Erasing that stigma and just reaching out a helping hand can go a long way too. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, just one more thing that that does get skipped is a lot of people are prescribed these and get addicted by using them completely legally and it's not their fault. And, um, you know, yeah, people need to know that, you know, it's not, it's not your fault. Absolutely. I mean, and that goes back to marijuana, like medical marijuana is kind of a wonder at tackling some of this pain that you can avoid some opioids instead. Right, right. Last time I checked, it's still, I think, zero, zero people. You can't overdose on weed, even with this incredibly concentrated stuff that they have now. Uh, you know, <laughs> teenagers need to stay away from it. It can definitely have a, a worse effect, um, you know, we're learning. But uh, anyway, uh, and mushrooms too. Uh, let's, get, let's get our oh, arms yeah. around this stuff. Yeah, we're certainly no experts, folks, but uh, <laughs> just a little two cents. <laughs> in Ohio, Republicans are close to imposing a near total ban on municipal broadband. Ohio's Republican controlled legislature is on the verge of imposing a state law to dramatically restrict the rights of cities and towns to build and operate municipal broadband networks. The Ohio Senate on June 9th approved a budget bill that contains an anti municipal broadband amendment. It's not a done deal yet, and advocates for public networks are urging the legislature to strip the amendment from the final budget. The budget bill is expected to be hammered out within the next two weeks. If passed, the proposed law could kill existing broadband services and prevent new ones from being deployed. There are reportedly 30 or more municipal broadband providers in Ohio that would not be allowed to operate so long as there's a private sector company operating in the same area, as there are in most, if not all, cities. According to the Community Networks team at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, which has been tracking the legislative process, 
If the amendment contained in the Senate's budget survives the budget process, it would make Ohio the first state in a decade to erect barriers to the establishment and expansion of municipal broadband networks. Making matters worse for municipalities, the amendment the amendment language prohibits a political subdivision from using federal funds or public services revenues to fund or subsidize construction, deployment, purchase, lease, or operation of broadband facilities or the provision of broadband services to subscribers. Oh, wow. So, I mean, this is just putting money in private sector. Like, that's all this is. It's it's legislators looking out for their money pots. Yeah, yeah. That's really crazy. There is municipal broadband in Longmont, Colorado here, and it's a town that's uh, politically very moderate. Um, and they pay $25 a month, I think. Everyone in Longmont pays 25 bucks a month, gig speed internet. And it was a battle to get it because the telecoms don't want your town to be able to do this. And it is really despicable that legislators are going into work and they're using their time and power to control who is allowed to sell you internet. Um, yeah. I mean, in a day and age where, I mean, honestly, we need to give, we need to get everybody internet. Like that's what needs to happen in this country. Like it's beyond the point where it's a luxury item. It is a day to day need. And right. like right now it's not even clear who proposed the new law. Apparently like the language was inserted without prior public discussion um, during Senate deliberations. Some people think that um, one of the people that might be behind some of the power move on it is Republican State Rep. Uh, Rick Carfagna. Uh, he's a government relations manager. He was a government relations manager for Time Warner Cable, now Charter, um, for a little over a decade. Um, and he's one of the legislature's more active lawmakers on broadband policy. He himself couldn't have submitted the amendment because he's not in the Senate. But he could have played a role in some of the House Senate negotiations over it. And I mean, it's just, you know, it's just people who have ties to the private sector, probably getting some money in their pockets for their campaigns, trying to, you know, look out for their their people, not right. the people of the state, obviously. Right, right, right. The interest groups who fund their campaigns. Yeah, Charter, company with an excellent reputation. Excellent. <laughs> CAFOs with as many as 10,000 hogs coming to a community near you. Jeff Jones has lived on his family's land east of Columbia, Missouri, his entire life. Some of the family's farms are more than 150 years old. And Jones, who raises cattle and grows row crops, has no intentions of going anywhere. But after years of fighting, his community is home to a concentrated animal feeding operation, or CAFO, that can raise as many as 10,000 hogs at any given time. The facility, which opened in 2019, houses the animals in barns built over concrete pits to store manure for months. Jones and CAFO critics consider them a health hazard, or at least a nuisance. One of the most common complaints is the stench from hog shit and dead animals. I'm farmer to the bone. My nose is tough. And this is unlike anything I've ever experienced, Jones said of the Callaway Farrowing CAFO. This is like breathing straight ammonia. It'll make your eyes water. Jones is part of Friends of Responsible Agriculture and said he fought the Callaway CAFO tooth and nail, but the CAFO permit went all the way up to the Western District Court of Appeals where it was upheld. Some rural communities in Northwest Missouri have successfully fought off CAFOs. 
One proposed for Livingston County withdrew its permit request earlier this year after opposition and a lawsuit from neighbors. In 2019, the Valley Oaks Steak Company, southeast of Kansas City, announced it would close its doors after an earlier attempt to expand. But in Jones' view, it's getting harder for local communities to stop industrial hog farms. They're passing laws out of the benefit of money instead of out of the benefit of people, so the people's voice is becoming less instead of more, Jones said. In 2019, Missouri had more than 500 CAFOs, according to the Missouri Coalition for the Environment. Far less than the thousands in Iowa, the Missouri Department of Natural Resources did not provide data on the number of permitted CAFOs each year, but according to its website, it has issued permits for about 20 more since then. Over the past several years, Missouri has passed several pieces of legislation to make way for CAFOs. About 10 years ago, the Missouri General Assembly eliminated citizens' ability to make nuisance complaints for non-economic damages against CAFOs. And as of 2019, local and county health departments can't issue ordinances governing CAFOs that are any stricter than state rules. That law is currently tied up in court. This year, the legislature limited who can inspect agricultural facilities to state and federal agricultural and environmental officials and law enforcement in an apparent effort to bar local health departments from viewing the facilities. Governor Mike Parson signed the legislation into law Thursday, saying it protects producers and supports Missouri's agriculture industry. Kansas, too, has been criticized for tipping the scales in favor of CAFOs. Officials with the Kansas Department of Health and Environment have been negotiating with large hog farmers to amend state regulations and allow producers to divide their herds into distinct business operations on one piece of property, essentially allowing them to double the size of their CAFO without moving it any farther from the closest body of water, homes, churches, or schools. Yeah, I know that we've dug into the CAFO stuff a couple times. That Livingston County one was the one we were talking about on the past flyover views. I mean, it's just... It's tough because we're we're facing a situation where Americans love to eat meat and we need that s- sort of level of production and this is certainly a means to an end in order to meet that need but it you know it's certainly not always the best for the animals and certainly not the best for some neighbors yeah yeah well, you think of like that concept of nimbyism, you know, not in my backyard. And so, you know, it's one thing to have like a needle exchange in your backyard or like a, a homeless shelter. And, you know, there's trade-offs. It's another thing to have a 10,000 hog, you know, manure pit <laughs> right. in your backyard, you know, and these are all local, but the thing that, you know, the, you know, the business the, the 10,000 hog farm operation is going to have a lot more power than the homeless shelter. And, you know, the, the benefit to the community, <laughs> you know, if there's homeless people in the community, you know, I think a lot of these NIMBY things are, you know, they're all very case by case, but the idea that these CAFOs are safe, that they, that there's something that we should want, um, you know, is hog shit. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, follow the money. Like, CAFOs bring in money um, and these other things that could be more beneficial to a community don't. Like you said, hog shit. Hey, folks, it's Adam Summer for the Heartland Pod. Just wanted to let you know that on Monday's Heartland Pod, we're going to have Peter Meredith, the Democratic Missouri State Representative uh, from the 80th District, 
Peter uh, comes on to talk about session and also to talk about uh, term limits and a few other things. Uh, really enlightening conversation. Peter's a lot of fun to talk to. Uh, I, I had a great time. I think he did too. Uh, so I think it's going to be a good episode. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Uh, and so we'll see you Monday. And a reminder that if you start listening to episodes on the Adori app, uh, you can actually get some interactive stuff going on there, pictures, links, things like that. Uh, it's starting to work pretty well. Plus, there's a transcript feature. So if you want a transcript, you can get the Adori app and you can get the Heartland Pod there. You can get a transcript, interactive pictures, uh, you know, and all the same content. Uh, but if you're if you're listening to us on uh, iTunes or Spotify or any place like that, please leave us a rating and review. Uh, please give us five stars. Say something about the show that you like. And hey, this week, please tell a friend. Uh, you can uh, also tell them to follow us at the Heartland Pod on Twitter and to visit us at theheartlandpod.com uh, for information about all of the shows and links to all of the shows as well. And now back to the rest of the show. Biden administration delivers debt relief to former ITT tech students. Education Secretary Miguel Cardona said Wednesday that 18,000 former ITT tech students defrauded by the defunct for-profit chain will have their federal loans fully canceled. This is the first significant step the Education Department has taken to address debt relief claims filed by ITT tech students since the school shut down in 2016. 34,000 former students have petitioned the department to cancel their debt under a statute known as Borrower Defense to Repayment but were rebuffed by the Trump administration. Eligible borrowers will be notified in the coming weeks, and the approvals amount to a total of $500 million in debt relief, covering two categories of claims submitted by former students, their ability to transfer credits and their ability to get a job after graduating. State and federal authorities, including the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and Iowa Attorney General's Office, found from January 2007 through October 2014 that ITT Tech routinely misled students about the ability to transfer their credits to other schools. They also discovered the for-profit chain lied to students about employment and earnings prospects after graduation. The Education Department said that evidence, along with findings from advocacy group Veterans Education Success, serves as the basis for the approvals. Carrie Wolford, president of Veterans Education Success, said, quote, so many veterans came to us about how ITT Tech cheated them. Their courage and that of several key whistleblowers enabled us to provide the Education Department the evidence it needed to deliver long-awaited justice to these brave students, end quote. Chris Jones announces run for Arkansas governor in 2022. Arkansas native Chris Jones announced his Democratic campaign for the governor of Arkansas. Jones is a physicist and ordained minister. He holds five degrees, bachelor's degrees in physics and mathematics, master's degrees in nuclear engineering and technology and policy, and a PhD in urban studies and planning. Jones says he is focused on rebuilding an organization that could use science and technology to open doors for all. He says, quote, the last few years have shown how much political division can tear us apart. The reality of this moment in our nation's history is that if we want our politics to be different, we have to be different. Other candidates may try to divide us in this election, but I'm not running for governor to fight a culture war or go on cable news. I'm here to bring Arkansans back together with a campaign that brings out our best. After the pandemic, we're ready for a real recovery, one that reaches every community. We want life to get back to normal, but not a return to the status quo. 
We want new goals, new possibilities, new leadership that doesn't shy away from challenges and instead dares to dream big. I'm in this race because Arkansas needs a governor focused on solutions, not politics. I'm in this race to rebuild our infrastructure, to invest in healthcare and education, to extend access to rural broadband and to give Arkansans a tool, the tools we need to compete. I'm running because we want a governor focused on healthy families and thriving neighborhoods, not what's happening in Washington. I'm in this race because the people of Arkansas deserve a voice and a governor who will list. Sounds like a good guy to me. Gas and delivery fees will increase as Colorado approves billions for transportation. The transportation funding plan to begin in 2022 will spend billions of dollars on projects across the state from front range interstates to rural bus stops. The funding bill passed this legislative session is projected to raise $5.4 billion by the 2031-32 fiscal year. The majority of the new funding will go to roads and provides more than $1 billion for electric vehicles and charging infrastructure, as well as transit projects. Governor Jared Polis said the law will finally fix the damn roads in Colorado, claiming that the spending would also support 27,000 jobs. The projects will be paid for by a series of new fees starting in July 2022 and including a fee on gas purchases, which will grow from $0.02 cents per gallon starting next July to $0.08 cents per gallon in 2028. It will increase with inflation after that. A $0.27 cent fee on retail deliveries from companies like FedEx, Amazon, Grubhub, and Instacart. A $0.30 cent fee on most rides from apps like Uber and Lyft, although it's only $0.15 cents for electric vehicles and shared rides. Higher registration fees for electric vehicles, equivalent to roughly $5 increase next year since electric vehicle drivers use the roads but don't pay gas taxes or fees. The bill also temporarily decreases motor vehicle fees, totaling about $16 per vehicle across 2022 and 2023. Ultimately, the proposal passed in the final days of the session with just one Republican vote in support. The TWRA continues to report evidence of alligators and cougars expanding into Tennessee. The Tennessee Wildlife Resources Agency, or TWRA, is again reporting evidence of alligators and cougars expanding into the state. It was listed in the TWRA Tennessee Hunting and Trapping Guide for the 2020 and 2021 season. TWRA says the information about alligators and cougars expanding into the state has been included in the guide for the past few years. The new hunting guide will come out in August and is expected to have the same information, saying that, quote, there is evidence of cougars and alligators expanding their territories into Tennessee. Species that expand their ranges into Tennessee are protected and may not be taken until a hunting season is proclaimed. Alligators and cougars are protected by state laws in Tennessee. According to the TWRA, that though 56 gators were dropped in the Wheeler National Wildlife Refuge as an effort to expand the species in 1979, currently these alligators are naturally expanding their range into Tennessee from the southern border states, and that the TWRA has not stocked any alligators in Tennessee of late. A couple of years ago, a Middle Tennessee Police Department warned people about flushing drugs down the toilet and its effect on the wildlife, writing in part that, furthermore, if it made it far enough, we could create some meth gators in Shoal Creek in the Tennessee River down in North Alabama. Just what everybody needs. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's all the time we have, folks. I want to thank you all for joining us. And a reminder, if you have a story you feel we should look into, possibly something about more meth gators, 
We could highlight it on the show, but you need to tweet us at Heartland Pod. The Fly Review is a production of MidMap Media LLC. This week's episode features reporting from the Associated Press, Ars Technica, Missouri Independent, Washington Post, KTHV Little Rock, Colorado Public Radio, and WZTV Nashville for the Meth Gator story. Remember to subscribe so you get this show and all our Heartland Pod offerings with new episodes released Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Thanks for joining us and see you next time. Same time, same place. Take care. All right. Meth is all day.